Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And if we were going to give a word for the book of Thessalonians, we would use the word model. There's a calling here to be models. The apostles were examples and models to the Thessalonians, and the Thessalonians turned out to be models and examples, and we are called to be that as believers, to live a life that can be exemplified. And so Paul will go into that more as he goes through this book in the book of First Thessalonians. So we are ending this section, really, of verses 1 to 10, which I would understand is Paul's thanksgiving in light of God's work in the Thessalonians' life. And so this morning, I want to read verses 1 to 10. Our text this morning will just simply be verses 9 and 10. Otherwise, we will be here for five hours. So let's read the book from the beginning. Listen as Paul is writes. Again, remember, he is being moved along by the Holy Spirit. So whatever you hear, whatever you are listening to this morning are the very words of God as, he has, as if God had spoken and breathed them out himself. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full convictions, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. There ends the reading of God's inerrant word this morning. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer this morning and ask him to teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And again, we are always reminded of your graciousness to give us a word of God that is in our language, a word that we can understand, a word that is, is not unclear. It's not like creation that has a, a witness to your existence and your glory, but we can actually know what you, who you are and what you desire from us. And so this morning, again, as we look into your word, we pray that the Holy Spirit will again teach us and we will again 
apply this word to our hearts and that we too will be sure that there has been a work of grace in our lives as we again test ourselves and as we look at your word this morning, I pray. I pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen. So as I mentioned, we are finishing up really this Thanksgiving section that Paul has begun as he gives thanks to God always for all of you. Paul is now giving thanks to God, uh, but he is not thanking God so much as, uh, in the idea of because the Thessalonians are so great, but he is thanking God for his work in their lives. In other words, he is, he is, is, his thanks is to God for what God is working out in the Thessalonians. And so this isn't a, an ode to the Thessalonians. This is an anthem of praise to God and thanksgiving for God's grace that has worked in their lives. And so as we've gone through this, we've, we've been talking about marks of grace or characteristics of God's saving grace in people's lives. How is that seen? What, what, what is involved in that? And we, we started off with saying that there is, there's a spiritual fruit. In other words, there are these uh, spiritual virtues that are, are, are actually demonstrated not just by, by, by creed, but by action. In other words, there's something that happens in people's lives that there is a change and there's a fruit that takes place. There's a work, there's a labor, there's a steadfastness that comes into a believer's life. There's a transformation of life. Then we said there's a mark of God's saving grace in people's life is simply the fact that it is God's loving choice. Paul says, actually, God chose you. He, he's the one who set his grace upon you. He's the one who saved you. He's the one who gave you salvation. And so Paul wants to, to affirm that a true saving work of God is not man-centered. It's not something that's made up in man's ability to somehow make good decisions and crank up something in and of himself, but comes from the gracious choice of God. And as you trace scripture, this, this is a theme that comes over and over and over. His choice of you. His choice of you. For God so loved the world that he sent. It is God on a rescue mission to save those whom the Father has given. And then we saw that there was that the, the, a true work of God, a true work of God's grace comes through the preaching of the word of God. And we saw that there was a dynamic preaching of the word of God, that it came, that the gospel proclamation came in word, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in full conviction, that the people who came, came in a full conviction that what they spoke was true. And it, it affected the lives, the, the missionaries were, were demonstrating the fullness of the gospel in their lives, and the power of the gospel was proclaimed to them and God works through the powerful preaching of the word of God through men who are under the control of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit takes that message then to the hearts of the converts. And then we saw not only does, did, was there gospel proclamation, but there was godly imitation. 
In fact, there was godly imitation of godly leaders, I think is what we said last week. And so there's this idea that the Christian life is not about this solo effort, but an effort to actually be imitators. In fact, we said that was another word for discipleship. You are to be imitators, right? We are called to imitate godly leaders and those God, as those godly leaders imitate the Lord Jesus Christ, our ultimate example. And so it is, it is a, a life of imitation. And so we wanted to, and, and the question we asked was, who are you imitating? We live in a day and age where everybody wants to be unique and have their unique expression, and yet scripture doesn't point to that. It actually says there is, there's an imitation you are to follow, and you are to follow godly people. And so the idea is this, who are you following in your life? Is there a godly person in the church or in your life who you look to as they follow Christ and you imitate them? Now, we again, we didn't say that you had to do everything exactly like them, right? So you, you, don't, you don't walk around and go, hmm, and, and you know, say the same words and, and the same inflection and dress the same. But the idea is you, you replicate the virtues and, the, and the, the, the pursuit of God that you see. And then we said the natural result of imitation is for you to be an example yourself. You become a godly example to others. In other words, you cannot help but become an example. And I guess it doesn't matter if you're a good one or a bad one. You are always an example, but you are called to be a godly example. And the result of, of following godly leaders who ultimately are following Christ is that you yourself become a godly leader and someone to follow. And so the question we asked was, who's following you? Are you living a life that is so, so much in pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ and in such obedience that if people followed you, they would be closer to Christ, they would be more mature in Christ two years from now? Or would be, they be at the same place? Would, or would they be farther away? Should people be following you? And again, a true work of God, of grace in God's, uh, in your life will produce people who not only imitate, but be, become examples for others to follow. And that really leads us here this morning, <coughs> excuse me, to really our, our last mark of God's work of grace in your life. The last mark of God's work of grace in your life, your, his saving grace. And that is a public testimony of true conversion. In other words, when you come to salvation, there should be, if there's a true work of grace, that there are others are going to be able to testify that there has been a change in your life. Now, we live in a, time, a day and age where many people are saying, you know what, you can be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can come and be saved. Jesus can be your savior but he doesn't have to be your Lord. And in fact, if you demand that Jesus Christ be your Lord and that you are living in obedience and you have a changed life, you are pushing works into salvation and it's no longer of grace. And yet this morning, I think we're gonna see something completely different. That actually you cannot be a disciple of Lord Jesus Christ without 
there being a marked change in your life. You cannot come to faith and act as if, and have life carry on as it did before. And in fact, that, that's one of the marks of a true work of God is actually there's a change in direction in your life where you are no longer who you once were and the direction that you were headed is no longer the direction that you are going. Now, some of you are going to say, but I thought Paul talked about being a carnal Christian. I thought you could be a carnal Christian. Well, if we look at Paul's definition of a carnal Christian, he is not saying that there are the super Christians who live in obedience. And there are these other Christians who have just gotten in in salvation, but continue to live in sin. What he calls a carnal believer is an immature believer. In other words, it's not, it's not a state to stay in. It is a state that you are in when you come to salvation, but it is, not a, it is a state of babiness. And if you are truly born again, you will start to grow out of it. And so we don't want to think, well, somehow well, there, not all Christians have to have a change in direction, right? That will come later. We'll know. Bible doesn't teach that and I think we'll see that this morning as we look at the Thessalonians as they came to salvation there is a public testimony to their true conversion in other words there was such a radical change people started to speak about it and so the question for us this morning is have we been truly converted have we been so radically changed that people would know that we're actually saved? Has there been a change in direction? And for some of us, this is just affirm our salvation. And we should be going like, yes, I see it. I see a pattern of change. And for some of us, we might have to look back and say, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And maybe there's going to be an indication that we're actually not believers because we, we have had no change at all. In fact, we don't desire change. And so this morning, let us, let us test our own hearts. Have we been truly converted? So this morning, he begins really speaking of a public testimony to their conversion. He says, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. And again, report means to give an account or to announce and to declare. And so Paul is saying, these believers are coming to us. These believers in Macedonia, these believers in Achaia are coming to us and they are telling about how things went when we went when we came to you now it's interesting because if, if we just want to put it in perspective Thessalonica is in Macedonia Paul is writing from Corinth which is in Achaia and so he says that all these believers are coming to us and they themselves are reporting to us this is other believers. And the idea here is these reports keep coming. They keep repeatedly coming to Paul. These are not fleeting reports, but constantly. Paul is constantly, maybe we could say he's being interrupted in his day as people come to testify to them about 
something that has taken place with the Thessalonians. And the good news is that actually their report is accurate this time. They are actually reporting what has come true. And they report two things. They report two things to Paul. The first thing they report is what kind of reception we had with you, number one. And number two, how you turn from God, from idols to serve a living and true God. And really, we could say in some ways, these are speaking of the same thing. They are, they, are, they are speaking about the same incident. They are talking about the same events. And so he says, I, I want you to know what kind of reception that we had with you. Now, the idea here, this word can be translated entrance, like the act of entering. In other words, what, what he is emphasizing here is, not so much how the Thessalonians responded to the missionaries, but how the missionaries were amongst them. In other words, they're reporting and they're saying that this is how the missionaries came into our lives. The Thessalonians have told us and we have seen how the missionaries came and how they impacted our lives. This is... Uh, the New King James writes it this way, for they themselves declare concerning what manner of entry we had with you. In other words, we entered into your lives, and this goes back maybe to verse 5, where he says, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. In other words, they came back reporting and, and the, about us. In other words, they're reporting about the missionaries. This is how the impact of their lives and the message that was brought to the Thessalonians was. And so it's interesting because in contrast to heralds that came from the world, often an entrance of orator to a city would be a grand event. And they would, they would announce it before and they would announce it to the city and the people would come out to meet them because they had heard about them and about this distinguished orator who was coming. And so there was an invitation list that was arranged and they would, the city would get all worked up and, and it, there would be enthusiasm. But Paul's and, and his associates to Thessalonica was not accompanied by ceremony. It was distinguished from the common stock of philosophers. And so they, they came in and they came in and they preached the word of God. They were not coming with pomp and circumstances, but simply giving the gospel and preaching and living out the gospel in front of them. They didn't come seeking glory, but their entrance was accompanied by the divine message and power and the fulfillment of God's salvation in them. And so they didn't come with pomp and circumstances, but they came as godly men, convinced of the truth of the gospel, and their message was powerful. And so he says, the first thing that people are telling us is they're actually coming back and telling us about how we behaved among you, how we brought the gospel, how we behaved as we came. And then secondly, 
he says this. And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is the testimony. Maybe we're going to camp here this morning. But this is, this is what they, they are coming. They are coming to say that you turned, how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. Okay, so this here refers to the, those in Achaia, I mean Thessalonians, who heard, who came and heard the gospel, and this was the reaction to the gospel. And we could maybe say that this is the, a, a very short description of conversion. How you turned to God from idols. This is what you could describe in a short way. This is what conversion is. They turn from God to God from idols. Now this statement here really circles around that word turned. Turned. Epistreo. It means in a physical sense to turn around, but it can mean to change one's mind. But in a spiritual sense, it denotes a, deterring, a turning which alters the course of their lives so that they are now moving in the opposite direction. This is where we talk about a 180 degree turn. In other words, they were going north, now they are going south. They are going in a completely different direction. They didn't alter their course, they didn't just adapt a little bit. There is a complete 180 degree turn. Now this term is used in scripture for conversion in the New Testament. This is a word that is consistently used by Paul for conversion. Paul uses the word regularly in, in Acts 3.19. He says, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. In other words, this is conversion. Repent and return. Turn around. Come back. He says again, Paul is on his first missionary journey and people want to, they, they, they're amazed by the works that Paul is doing and the, and the miracles and, and the people want to worship him. The people want to sacrifice to him and his ministry friends. And Paul says, men, why are you doing these? We, also, we are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should what? Turn from vain things to a living God. In other words, this, this is what conversion is. It, is. it is a double thing. It is turning from something and turning to something. It is used, again, he uses this word for Jews in 2 Corinthians 3.16. But whoever, uh, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. There's, there's a veil over their eyes, but when the person turns, that is, turns to the Lord, that veil is taken away. And this, this concept of conversion is central to the concept of salvation. It was a word that was a similar concept in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 14.6. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord, repent and turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all abominations. And so the idea here is a turn, a turn, a turn from idols, 
To be face to face with God is the idea. There is a turning to Him. Now there's a radical change that comes in the believer's life. Now notice this, it says they turned, they turned. Again, they were not forced to turn. They were not forced to turn, they turned. And this is where we, get, we understand this. The natural response to regeneration is conversion. The natural response to regeneration is conversion. In other words, we turn, we, we, we repent, and we come in faith. That is the natural response. In other words, this is what takes place. Because a work of grace has taken place, the natural response is going to be what? To be a turning and a changing. Conversion is always a voluntary act of the individual in response to regeneration. God does not force people into conversion. God regenerates them, gives them a new nature, and people come of their own free will. And so again, conversion is the human response to regeneration. They turned to God. Negatively, they turned from idols. They had turned from all the idols that they had known in their past. And again, we will remember that in the first century here, they were full of idols. They had temples that they went to and they had gods that they worshiped and they bowed down to these idols. And this idolatry affected every part of their life. It affected how they understood nature. It affected how they lived. It affected their culture. It was part, and remember, culture is infested with the religion of the people. And these people lived a life that was, was in worship of these false gods and often involved in immorality and, and was, was a full way of life. And this is what controlled them. This is what controlled their souls. This is what controlled their affections. This is what, what pushed them in their lives. And it says they turned from them. In other words, they abandoned them. They no longer followed after those idols. They didn't add Jesus Christ to these idols. They didn't, they didn't become synergistic they did, or, and, and start bringing in all of these idols together with them. They didn't add as if he was one more God because they had many gods. But for the Thessalonians, listen very carefully. They didn't add Jesus to the rest of the gods. He became their Lord. He became their master and there was no other God. And the mark of true conversion is that you give up all other gods, all other idols to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot take pieces of other false religions and bring them with you. They must be abandoned. We have to understand, these people didn't get tired of their idols and turn to God. They, un- they, 
they got regenerated and they saw the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ and the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ and they turned and they ran to him. They didn't cling to their idols. And so these Thessalonians now have turned to God. They have turned to the Lord Jesus Christ and they have made him fully the Lord of their lives. They have, they have in essence, repentance is what? The covering of your mouth. And saying unclean. And these Thessalonians understood who Jesus Christ was. They had understood that he was the pearl of great price. He was the worth, the loss of all things. Now you can imagine how radical that was in in a society that worshiped at the temple. They had a temple who went to the sacrifices, who had idols even in their homes. And the Christians simply put that all away. They didn't keep some in the bottom drawer. They turned from them. We often think of idols as those images that that people bow down to. But ultimately, an idol is anything that you place in worth in front of the Lord Jesus Christ. Anything that controls your soul, anything that controls your affections more than the Lord Jesus Christ. And even good things become idols when they are in the wrong place. And so we often think, well, we, we're not into idolatry. We don't, we don't put up statues in our home or go to church and bow before a, an image. But the question is, what do we bow to every week? What do we bow to in our hearts? What has control of our affections? What do we have before the Lord Jesus Christ? What desires, what hopes do we have before him? Or has there been a radical changing for the ones, the things that once controlled your heart and controlled your affection and controlled your emotions, have they been changed? Have they been radically changed so that you are going in a completely different direction? Or do you still go in the same direction? So the question is, have you truly been converted? Have you truly been converted? Has there been a conversion in your life where you can look back and say, I have turned from the idols of sin. I have turned from self. Some of you may have grown up in a Christian home and you're just like, well, I I don't know. Have you turned from your self-righteousness? Is there there that time in your life, can you trace back where there's been a change, where now you are radically different, going in a radically different direction than you once were? Have I surrendered my life and made Jesus Christ my Lord and Savior? 
Have I turned to the true Jesus? And what I mean by that, the true Jesus revealed in the Bible, not the Jesus that, that I have sentimental thoughts about, and ideas that are contrary to Scripture, but have you gone to Scripture and find the true Lord Jesus Christ and who He claims to be? Are you worshiping Him and not some figment of your own imagination, which is really just another idol? But you must know who He is through the Word of God. He is the Son of God, fully God and fully man. And so the question is, is he master of my life or am I serving idols? Is he master of my life or is he, am I serving idols? Now it's interesting He says there's a result of this. There's two purposes of your conversion. And one thing I I I just wanted to say this. For the Thessalonians, there had been such a radical changing and turning that others were making a public testimony about it. Others were making a public testimony about it. This isn't the Thessalonians giving their testimony. This is others saying something about them. If we were to poll other believers and other people around you, would they be confident of your salvation? Are you living in such a way that people would say, yeah, there is no doubt There has been such a radical change in their life and there's such a direction towards the Lord Jesus Christ, I have no doubt. Remember, this is what the Thessalonian church is and here's just the absolute insane part of this. This church is six months old. This church is six months old, right? This isn't a church where they've been sitting in there for 20 years hearing the great teaching of exegetical teaching of the Word of God. This is six months old. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now it says, they turned from from, to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Here's the result. In other words, the testimony to their conversion is that they have the reception and they're turning to God from idols. And here's, here's really the purpose. Here's the result that takes place. Here's the purpose of their salvation. They were saved, it says, to serve a living and true God. They were saved to serve a true and living God. And then he says, secondly, to wait for his coming. But he says, here's, here's, here's what happens when, you're, when you come to salvation, you begin to serve. Now this word serve is consistent with what Paul preached when he commanded people to believe the gospel. 
But this verb here is, 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 is an intense verb. In other words, it, it, it's, more, it's more than just saying that they started to do things for God. It's more than that saying that, you know, they started to go to church, you know. They started to help weed the church garden, right? Took some meals to some people. This is more than that. This is an intense verb. It's actually the word dulo, which is related to the word doulos. Okay, slaves, slaves. And the idea of this verb is they began to act or do the conduct of one or the duties of a slave. Right? They started to do the duties of a slave. In other words, they had no will of their own. They had no life of their own. They simply began to serve a new master. And the idea is this. Understand this. It's not a matter if if you are a slave or not. It's just a matter of what you're a slave to. And these disciples had become slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. The most lowest dentured slaves, those who had no will, who had no rights, but simply began to do the will of their master. So you want to talk about remaining the same and doing your, you know what, Christ being the fulfillment of your desires and coming to Christ is going to make your life better and fulfill all your fleshly desires. And he says, no, actually it's the opposite. You come to the Lord Jesus Christ and it is the end of you. It is the absolute end of you. It's the end of your desires. It's the end of your dreams. It is now that you become a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 6, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and have been freed from sin and you became slaves of righteousness. In other words, you now become a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ in obedience to him. And he says, they came to what? Serve. They came to serve. And so we too are now slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ and we, we are called to be those who serve him. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body, you, your body. In other words, you were once a slave to sin, now you are a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. John eight thirty four. And so they recognize God as their master. And so they became those who were fully committed to the will of the master. They began to serve from God, to serve a living and true God. 
And again, the idea here is, is a contrast between dead and alive. They had once served idols, right? Dead idols who cannot hear, who cannot speak. And now they are serving the living God, the God who has life and power in himself, the author and preserver of life. And they were familiar with worshiping these idols. And so they were now worshiping the true God, the one God that is absolutely, there is only one God. There is only one true God that truly exists. And now they have come to serve the living God, the true God of Israel. And then it says he is the true God. And again, he is true because he is genuine and real and authentic. He is true because he is, he is true and all that he does is real and genuine. And again here, he says he is, he is they, the idea here is that they have turned to serve the living and true God. It doesn't say the God, it says God. He's trying again to emphasize his character. This is a, the true God, the one who everything that he does is, and everything that he says is true. It is not a lie. Isaiah 46, 9, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is what? No one like me. I am the true God. I am the living God, and there is no other God. They, didn't, they weren't serving some idols, some false God, but they were f- serving the true and living God. So he says the first result is what? Simply to serve. Their lives became, they became slaves to the living and true God, not false gods, Not false religion, but the true and living God. The second result, and equal equal to this. Now this is what I want you to see. There's an and here, okay? He says, I want you to follow this through the passage. We reported, right? Here's the report. The reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols. And how did that happen? To serve the living God. The result of that, to serve the living and true God. In verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven. Now, we often think that the result of conversion, we would, we would probably be saying, yeah, the mark of true conversion, and pastor, I agree with you, that last point, that we become slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to change our lives. But would you recognize that it is just as important to be anticipating the return of our Lord Jesus Christ? Think about that. I don't think we often think about that. That it is just as important to be waiting for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. To wait has the idea, describes a, 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 a waiting patience with trust. The idea here is to eagerly anticipate the one that's coming, to be, to be anticipating and be ready for the one that's coming. 
The idea is to keep waiting. This is, this is part of their life. This is part of your DNA, in other words. This is, this is what you do. If you're converted, you are waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. In fact, they saw the reason for their existence was waiting to have a patient expectation of his return, and they were looking to heaven. Now again, think about this. This church is six months old. Again, and look where their eyes are, and look what they're waiting for. This isn't some mature doctrine that we wait for as we get to be a believer, and we, we start to go like, yeah, the, the longer I've been in the faith, you know, I, I'm starting to anticipate the Lord comes. And then often as we get older, as I get older, I start to look more forward to heaven as things start to break down. But the idea here is that these are new believers who are anticipating the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is where their eyes are fixed. They are caught up in the expectation of Christ's return. That's where their focus is. And they are looking again to his son to return from where? Heaven. They are waiting for the long-anticipated son, his son. And again, there's a relationship there. He is, he is intimate with the father. He is, therefore, not only is he, is he the son of God, but he is God himself because he comes, he is God in that relationship. And this is the anticipation that should, re, should actually be characteristic of the Christian ch- church. It was from the very beginning of the church, they waited for Jesus Christ to come back. After all, when he said in Acts, as you see me go, so the son of man shall return. Acts makes it clear that this was an essential part of the preaching of the gospel. And it's amazing. Now, and listen to this. It is the mark of the persecuted church. It's the mark of the persecuted church. Remember, he says they received it in what? Much tribulation. And it is consistent throughout church history that those who are in persecution look forward to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think in North America, we have become so comfortable. Our lives have been so comfortable and things have been so good and we have been so prosperous that we're often thinking, Lord, don't come. We've got the weekend planned. Come after the weekend, right? We want to go to the lake. We've got family to see, Lord. And our joy is more horizontal and earthly than it is heavenly. And we, we have more anticipation of the weekend than we do of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, we, and it's actually tragic. And we often are looking today, I think, and we think, well, man, society is getting hostile and things are not like they used to be. And would Lord, just change the government and make the laws back to the way they used to be. And boy, there's storm clouds coming. And maybe instead of saying, Lord, hold back the clouds, we should say, bring the clouds, because guess what? We're failing on number two here because we're not anticipating waiting for the Lord's coming because everything's so comfortable. And so we are called to wait 
wait for the Son of God from heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and he will return. So the question is, when's the last time you thought about the return of Christ? Yesterday? Day before? Last week? Last time you studied eschatology? Right? We often focus on the here and now and we are earthly minded and earthly bound. Colossians 3.9 Therefore, if you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things on earth. For you died and your life is hidden in Christ with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him, what, in glory. And he says, this, this is where your eyes should be, looking to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the natural response of those who have had a work of grace in their life. That's what the Thessalonians, that was their anticipation. That's where their affections were. Now he describes some more. He said, who is raised from the dead? This, th- whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus. He says, this is, this is, the, this is central to the gospel. The message is, of, of the resurrection is central to that gospel. It was central to what Paul did when he came to the Thessalonians. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbath reasoned with them from the scripture, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and to what? And rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now get this, Jesus did not just die for sins, right? He did not just die for sins. He was the first fruit among the brethren. He satisfied God's wrath and was raised again. And it's because he satisfies God and because God raised him from dead, demonstrating his satisfaction with his sacrifice that we too will be raised. And so he says, he, whom, him whom he raised. That is Jesus. Again, this is his earthly name. This is his human name. And he says, this one who came and died is Jesus. That human being who walked this earth who is fully God and fully man. He is the true and living God. This is Christ in his incarnation. And this is what the angel said to Mary. His name, you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. And so inherent in this name is the concept of savior. He will save his people from the sins. So Christ came and he saved us from sin. And then it says here, he who rescues us from the wrath to come. To save, to rescue, to deliver. Places the emphasis on the greatness of the the peril from which deliverance is given by a mighty act of power. Now notice this, he says he rescues what? Us. Again, it's, it's not everyone, it's not indiscriminate. But it's Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, the Thessalonians, and all the elect, those who will be saved. 
Christ is just not a rescue from our sins, but he is a rescuer from what? The wrath to come. Romans tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There, we will never face wrath. And this word here is the wrath is used for divine wrath. Is always used for divine wrath. And it says he will what? Rescue us from the, the wrath to come. He doesn't say he'll keep you through it. He doesn't say he'll, he'll help you to work through it. He says he will what? Rescue you from it. He will take you completely out of it. We will see that later on in Thessalonians. There's coming a time where the day of the Lord is coming and God's divine wrath will be poured out and then God's wrath will be poured out on those who reject him at the great white throne. And so he says, God, Christ didn't just rescue you from sin. He rescued you from the divine wrath that you will never, ever have to face. What an encouragement. We as believers, because of our conversion, because we have come to faith and repentance, will never face the wrath of God. And so at the end of this, we would say this. Would anybody testify to your conversion? Would anybody even know that you were saved? Or does life just going on as normal? Am I converted? That's the question. Am am I truly born again? Have I been radically changed by the grace of God as he savingly has changed me? Am I in total submission to God? Am I, is he, am I a slave of Jesus Christ? Am I serving Jesus Christ? Do I get up in the morning and, and seek to please him? Or do I seek myself? Am I living in obedience? Or am I living in sin? Am I eagerly looking forward to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or does it scare me? Does it scare me? Do I, do I just say, well, I don't want him to come? Actually, this life is greater than that. Those who are truly converted look forward to that time. And so again, is it publicly evident? Is it publicly evident? Is your conversion publicly evident? Not just, not just to your pastor, not just to someone, But to the believers around you say, man, there's a change. He continues to continue to change in the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not or she's not who she used to be. They're growing closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says true conversion, a true work of God's saving grace in your life will produce a change, a 180 of life. And so I would say, do not fool yourself. This is not a slight altering change of course. This isn't something that you add to your life for life insurance. It is a radically transforming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And don't think because you've made pray to prayer or because you've made a profession or because you've been in the church for a long time or because you know Christianese that this conversion has take place. Are you a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you looking forward to his coming? Are these what consume you? If not, then ask God to give that to you. Maybe you're not saved and you need to cry out for repentance. And maybe you're an immature believer who needs to catch up with the Thessalonians and to look forward to serving and seeing our Savior. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the message that has come through in Thessalonians of your saving grace. And we, like Paul, give praise and honor and glory to you for our salvation. And we pray that you would work in our lives so that we would be known for those who are slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ and look forward and anticipate his coming. Lord, we thank you and praise you for the, your work in the Thessalonians. And we praise and thank you for the work that you have done in our lives, knowing that it is your grace. It is all of you. And so we praise and give you all honor and glory and praise this morning in your name. Amen.